I'm wondering if I should try to do the call and get cut off halfway or just not try. <laughs> I think any Tim is good Tim, even yeah. if get cut off halfway. Any Tim is better than no Tim. Well, not if it's like literally halfway, like you get chopped in half. Well, it depends well, on which half. You know, the top half can survive <laughs> for a little bit, right? All right. <laughs> there you go. This episode is sponsored by Component One, makers of Widgmo. If you need stunning UI elements or awesome graphs and charts, then go to widgmo.com and check them out. Hosting and bandwidth provided by the Blue Box Group. Check them out at bluebox.net. Hey everybody, and welcome to episode 26 of the JavaScript Jabber Show. This week on our panel, we have Joe Eames. Coming to you live from a van down by the river. (laughs) Not kidding either. Um, Also, we have AJ O'Neill. Coming at you live from the cardboard boxes of Orem, Utah. Jameson Dance. Coming at you pre-recorded. I'm actually just really good at guessing when to speak. Tim Caswell. Hello. Coming from Texas. And I'm Charles Maxwood from devchat.tv. This week we're going to be talking about reusing code and code organization. So, um, on the user voice forum, let me pull that up really fast. And they, there was a topic about code reuse. Um, dang, I should have had it up initially, but I didn't. Do you want me to read it? I have it here. Yeah, that'd be great. Um, I'd like the, the panel and potential guests to discuss patterns around augmentation, plugin hooks, prototype copying, prototypal inheritance, and pros and cons of each. Wow, that's a little more involved than. Sounds like fun. Yeah, I think we, I think we can uh, be sneaky and just use the title. I mean, we can talk about some of this stuff too if we want, but I think just the broad topic is interesting. Go ahead and paste that in the chat so I can read that one more time. It seemed like that was seven things or so. Boom! Pasted. Awesome. All right, so um. It's it best practices and patterns for code reuse. It's it's kind of funny because I think generally the way that a lot of folks do it in JavaScript, and I think we'll all agree that there are probably better ways to do it. Is they if they have a function that they need to use in more than one place, they just make it a global variable that you know it references the function that they're going to be calling, and then they just call it willy nilly wherever they need. I wouldn't say most people do that, at least not not in my experience. Well, we got to remember, amateurs. Yeah, ninety percent of all JavaScript programmers only program in JavaScript like an hour a week. Yeah, a couple hours. Yeah, I guess I guess I'm part of the people that do JavaScript all the time. So, I, yeah, I guess if you're if you're like a Rails guy that just needs to put some JavaScript in, that'd be your first instinct. Remember, it's the only language that people can program in without actually having to learn the language. <laughs> no, there's others. Like the Java ID will tell you what to type. I mean, <laughs> C sharp works that way too. You just hit Control Space, Control Space, Control Space for autocomplete. It looks like you're writing a server. You want some help with that? <laughs> <laughs> so actually, I don't see what is wrong with using a global function if your code base is small enough. I mean, that's all you have in C. And C is used for operating systems. You just got to namespace your function names. Yep. That's oh, how it works. But see, you, you just, 
you just took one step in the right direction there. You mentioned namespacing your your functions. Right, which is what everyone in C does. Otherwise, they'd conflict like crazy because globals are the only way to do it. Right. Well, I mean, that's a, still, it's a good point. It depends on really the size and the scope of what you're doing. If you're putting 30 lines of code into a page, then yeah, there's no reason to worry about anything else. And you only got a couple pages on your whole site that are going to use JavaScript. Put it into a function. You know, you got two pages going to reuse the same function. Put it in a function and include the file in both places. Bam, you're good. Yeah, that, that's true. I think, I think that's... Oh, go ahead. I was just going to say, I think premature generalization is worse than premature optimization. Well, what do you mean by premature generalization? A lot of programmers have the habit of thinking of every possible way this software might be used down the road and baking in a way to handle that right off the bat. And the fact is 90% of software projects never even get finished. I mean, yeah. that is that is so much wasted time. That's I mean, true. You, you got to be sane about it, not be sloppy, but don't, don't waste times on what ifs that probably will never happen. So there's a really awesome cartoon. Uh, you guys may have seen it. It's like a three panels. The first panel, the guy asks the other guy to pass the salt. And then the second panel, nothing's happening. And the third panel, he says, uh, hey, I asked you five minutes ago to pass the salt. The guy says, hold on. I'm building a framework for passing arbitrary condiments. <laughs> uh, that is XKCD 974. Wow, go. you had that one memorized. We, we need that Dang, in the show AJ. notes. Yeah, definitely. Not memorized, just I'm good at Googling. Faster so. than you can speak. <laughs> Plus, I recently I, used it in a blog post. Well, the amazing part is, let's see, wait, is it AJ that said that? Did you have that, AJ? Oh, uh, did I said what? Yeah, oh, no. You're the one Tim, posted. Tim's got the blog and Jameson's pre-recorded, so the fact that he knew about that, impressive. <laughs> <laughs> so, assuming you have more than a hundred line script, and you're actually, you know, like writing a real app, how should you organize your code? Well, then well, you I, put in the dollar function in jQuery, so that <laughs> yeah, it J loads after everything loads, are, right? jQuery plugins oh, are good ways to organize code, this right? This is where you listen to Joe. Plugin. Joe's got the solution here. You have to write the code so that it's testable. If you write it so it's testable, you end up with modules. No. Something like that, right? No, you got, got it. it wrong. You write the test, and then you write the code so that it'll pass the test. Right. Right, which, which ends up being testable codes. That's what I yeah. mean to say. So, I actually, well, actually don't like that method, but continue. <laughs> <laughs> no, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to get Joe to, to come out and, and share his knowledge. TDD it. Got to TDD it. Because he he gave a, a presentation at uh, at uh, UTOSC, yeah, and and then one before that at just uh, Utah JS, and and it was very enlightening the way that, that yeah, that out. was fun. Yeah. Well, so I wanted I wanted to point out here that I think the real problem is not for the guys that are programming in JavaScript full time. And not for the guys that are doing an hour a week. It's that middle ground as the project, you know, and projects are moving this way more and more and more. You start getting more and more JavaScript. And it's the people that have been doing an hour a week and just 20 lines of JavaScript in their pages. And all of a sudden they just need more. You know, the people that are doing it full time, they've probably already got this figured out. It's everybody else, which is a huge, I would still say the majority of JavaScript programmers are people that are working on projects that are pushing 
their JavaScript abilities, uh, the first time that they've ever at that company done a JavaScript project that big or put this much code together, it's those people that really have um, the the trouble and the need for you know help. Yeah, so I think I think that's true because I mean I'm one of those I'm probably the only person on this call that doesn't work in JavaScript all day. I mean my my primary programming is in Ruby and then I do JavaScript when I have to. And most of that's actually CoffeeScript, which is another can of worms. But anyway, um, so, yeah, I mean, sometimes I don't know exactly the best way to handle it because my core competency is based around all of the idioms and practices of Ruby, not JavaScript. So we've kind of been dancing around it and, and saying why it's good to use the, the best way to organize your code, but no one's actually come out and said what they think the best way to organize your code is, right? NPM so, modules, duh. Well, <laughs> some kind of modules. Um, I think it's still kind of up in the air, especially in the browser. It's not up yep. in the air. Node, if you're doing Node, of course, you want to use NPM. But, but you want to have your code in modules, and then you have some format for including modules into other files so you can build up off of that. And, the, and so, the issue with that is there is some overhead. We've kind of hinted at that. It's not the easiest way to just sit down and bust out something that works. There's lots of uh, crankiness that you have to go through to get that set up and working. Um, Stop perpetuating the lies. It's easy. You just have to have the right tool. No, Finding the right tool is hard, but that's why we're here. No, it's pack it's manager. Hi. It's... <laughs> and you just start trying to get everyone to use your library <laughs> I was going to no. say I think he's trolling us but <laughs> anyway it, it's worth it but it's it, you, you have to be at the size of project where the effort that you're putting into organizing your code is, is will save you time in the, long, in the long run because of that and that's one of the most difficult things in software development is getting at some point where you need to go with something bigger, broader, more abstract, and realizing it before you get too far down the road of not going there. Yeah. So. I, I can tell you that the way that I kind of evolved was at first, you know, I was just embedding JavaScript on the page. And then and then I moved around to, gee, I'm embedding a lot of JavaScript on the page. So then I started putting it in .js files. But it was still just kind of crammed in there. And finally, things got to the point where it was like, I really need to kind of organize this into pieces that do, you know, related stuff. And so then I'd namespace it, you know, var something equals and then some object that has the properties being the functions that I need and the, the other properties that those functions need to work. And then eventually I moved around to using something like Backbone.js or something, you know, when, when I got to the point where it was like, you know, I really need things that already know how to talk to each other. So... I think it would be good for us to talk about, you know, the like tiered step up model in organizing your code and re making your code reusable. Because I think there's a case for not that there's a there's a place in between. I'm just throwing functions all over the place inside of my HTML. Like, you know, you said, Chuck, the next step up is putting it in JS files. But there's a couple more steps before you get to I'm putting this, you know, I'm using AMD and putting using requires JS or or something else. Right. There's that red-green refactor idea, right? Like you start with really crappy code and you want it to do something, you test that it does something, and then you know you do that like five times and then you're like, oh, I have five pieces of crappy code and then you refactor. Right. Yep. Yeah, incremental's the key. 
because I mean, think about it. The, how is software different than manufacturing? If you're, if you're a worker at a factory building a car, you're going to build the same thing over and over and over. Right. Right. The, the hard work is taking the physical materials and putting them together. Software is completely inverted. If you wanted to make a copy of Microsoft office, you just copy the bits. You don't need a programmer for that. The, mm-hmm. the very nature of programming is you're doing something that's never been done before. Right. And if it's been done before, then you probably shouldn't redo it again exactly the same way. Right. So it's, it's going to be different. It's going to be unique. And with that in mind, you just, you don't, you don't know what you want. Right. right. And so incremental is the key. So I think that there's a few steps um, to take and the size of the project kind of dictates the value of them. But the first one, of course, like you said, Chuck, is just code right inside your page. The next one is putting code inside JS files, which still is that only for the sites that really have a small amount of JavaScript. And then the next step is one that a lot of, that's a place where I don't think a lot of people, but especially that aren't doing full-time JavaScript, are really aware that they can go to. And that is still using putting your JavaScript inside files, but then putting everything inside of uh, immediately executing functions, self-executing functions, and making sure that those functions are order independent. So you don't have to worry about the order of those uh, basically modules. It's not a real true module system. It's not AMD, but making it so that you all your different code blocks can run it in an order agnostic manner and then being able to include you know four or five pieces inside of a page and i've definitely been on that on that level on a lot of different projects and that's the one right before using a full-fledged like yes. browser by pack manager required just right no, exactly system, right? I, I think there's a level between i mean what's that there, there's a big difference between a module loader and a function like define like mm-hmm. i can i can write a I can write a define system that's 10 lines of code and then manually include script tags for all my modules and and it will just work as long as i have the right script tags in my html it'll all load fine i don't need a loader i don't need i don't need 14k of special code for all these edge cases well I mean, that's what almond js is isn't it i mean it's just the 10 lines that you need to say oh here's something if you require this look in the global else well, well, AlmondJS even is a little more because it follows the full AMD spec and supports all these different formats. I'm so saying, what would those 10 lines do? I'm confused. So basically you just, you just have a function called define or whatever you want to call it. I've done this a few times. And then, I mean, there's, there's ways to implement it, but you, you just store the definition in some hash. And then when something requires something, you, the first time you, you call the definition. And I mean, it's not a lot of code. Right. Well, that's that's really that's really clever. I hadn't, I hadn't even thought about that. Well, that's what these compiler systems are doing, like the Pack Manager and the One JS and the InterJS. I mean, they're they're module loaders. Some of them are a little bit more complicated than others, but it's like what Tim's saying. All they're doing is creating an object and a define function and a provide function or something like that. You know, right? Yeah. But if you if you don't want to buy into some spec and some module system and have to worry about some repository, you can just write your own version of define that works for your little project. And it can be entirely proprietary to your app, but it still gives you some organization. Uh So I think that's a step in between. That seems a little scary though, because you're losing all the interoperability 
um, with all these libraries that already have built-in support for AMD and, and CommonJS. Yeah, well, those two systems are so simple, I don't see why you would invent something different. I mean, you have one function versus two functions, either a define or you have a require and a provide. But what if, what if you're not aware of these? Then you need to get aware, right? I mean, that's why people listen to these talks and stuff. I mean, if, if somebody's listening to this, then they're already aware, right? Maybe. As of five minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> or five episodes ago. I mean. But also being aware can be scary. Like implementing require.js, J- require for example, for the first time can actually be, you know, a pretty daunting task. And there's a lot of friction with getting it going. Well, then choose one that's simpler. So what's simpler? Well, there's like there's several of them. The hard part is finding one you feel good about. Like, um, I feel pack manager is pretty simple. Pack manager build. If you have a package.json, it requires the files. Simple. Just like Node. Um, if you like Ender, you've already used Ender. That one is just as simple. Um, the one JS, the, what, what was the one you mentioned last week, Tim? I forgot the name of it. Jam? Jam, right? I mean, all of these are really simple. Require seems to be the more robust one in that that one doesn't have a compile step, but all these other ones, it's just like you type the name of the thing, you type build, right? Is that, that's how jam works, right? Like jam build or jam add or something like that. Well, sort of jam, jam is like NPM for require JS. It still uses require in the browser. Yeah. But I mean, the, the actual process is not a complicated process. It's like one or two steps, correct? Sure, but then you have all this code that you don't understand, and I've had to debug it, and when things go wrong, I had no clue where they went wrong. Whereas if it was a 10-line library I wrote, then I'd understand it. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that, that's the difference. Yeah. Absolutely. And I'm guessing that the part that broke was probably in where it walks the AST, and it concatenates the files together, and it did in the wrong order, and you had to like change it so it was more careful about how it handled which dependency gets loaded first or something like that. No, it was just I was using it wrong or something was documented <laughs> wrong. Or, and, and that's my point. Why should I have to spend all the time learning this new system if I don't need it? Right. Yeah, that makes sense. And, you know, a lot of times it is simpler just to put like a bare bones something together rather than, yeah, try and figure out what the ins and outs are of somebody else's system. So that gets into kind of a fundamental difference too um, between build versus use, right? And, and I think part of that is just philosophical. I mean, at some level, there are some things that you don't want to do yourself. But if it's kind of wishy-washy, there are some people that will tend towards building their own thing. And I think, Tim, you're definitely one of those people where you you're if you have a problem you're much more inclined to just make it a solution yourself and i agree with that agree with with tooting your own horn and and writing your own code just because it's fun but write code that will work with other people's code that's that's my one thing like i'm a i'm a crockford fan i like strict mode i like modules i like stuff that if you put it in somebody else's code it's not going to break that's my one qualm yeah, but if if your website or your Node app is really the only place that that code's ever going to be used, then... Then you should contribute more to the open source community because there's got to be some utility in it. If there isn't, you probably shouldn't be writing it. Right, which brings us back to code reuse. <laughs> <laughs> so... so um, one of the guys was saying, one of you guys mentioned Ember, which we hadn't even, you know, we've been discussing like package managers, but not frameworks. Yeah, like, the, the frameworks usually do provide some interesting mechanisms for that, don't they? 
Yeah. yeah I mean, you, you get like the Jupyter plugin system that's existed for years and years and, and, and various things like that. Well, and somebody made a joke earlier, but um, I've been at a place where they used uh, jQuery plugins for all code reuse. I've done that. So if you wanted to add JavaScript to the website in any way, you would write a jQuery plugin that provided it? Yeah. I mean, you could go outside of it, of course, and just plug it straight in. But the company basically had a standard and they kind of had this, you know, template. You'd grab it, you throw it in, your code inside of it, and they use jQuery plugins for everything. That's just kind of a fancier global. Yeah. Yeah. It's a fancier global. Well, it well, seems, so, it seems so like exactly. most of this is, you know, it's, we're, we're, we're talking about modules or something that looks like a class that namespaces, whatever it is. But, you know, ultimately when you come right out to the, you know, the top layer of whatever it is, it, it's a global. Right. In fact, in most languages, you know, you don't think of them this way, but all of your, all of your big constants, like your classes and things are, are globals. Right. Well, I mean, if you if you back up enough layers, sure, but that's like saying if you go back to Turing machines, then every single language is the same. It's it's how easy it makes you it makes it to do things at the level you're actually dealing with it. Oh, absolutely, I mean, absolutely. So so let's talk about namespaces in in pretty much every browser module system I've ever seen. There is one namespace, whether it be the window object or your AMD namespace or whatever. There's just one namespace. And so in one instance of your app, I can't have two different versions of jQuery using the module system. I'll have to like manually alias things and do it by hand. So most module systems are single namespace, but then you have the weird NPM system where it's nested namespace. Each module has its own namespace for its own dependencies. And the goal there was so that you could have conflicting versions in the same process. So it, it seems like if you want to do that in the browser, you have to kind of rely on the libraries to provide non-conflicting versions. Like jQuery has the no conflict thing. I think Backbone has something like that too. But if they don't do that, then you're kind of hosed is what you're saying, right? Yeah, the no conflict thing is just a way of staying off the window global. But I mean, like, like you can't really do... I don't know of any module system for the browser that has nested namespaces. And that, nope. that really sucks because most uh, server-side languages support nest, you know, use nested frameworks. And so we're used to that paradigm when you get down on the client. And it's like, if you don't roll it yourself, all the built-in ones are just going off of a single namespace. Which, which isn't a bad thing. In fact, if you look at the Jam.js readme, he is purposely making it single namespace only. Because in the browser, every byte costs you. And you don't want to encourage people to have three versions of jQuery just because it's easier on them. Well, and, but on the server side, you know, it's not just having three versions of the same thing. That's the benefit in nested namespaces. It's also um, just an increased code organization. Yeah, I mean, there's pros and cons. But like, as far as like AMD versus global, as far as I'm concerned, it's just another way to do global namespacing. Right. You can have window.dollar, you can require jQuery, it's all the same. Right. Yeah, that's very true. The nice thing about AMD is you're able to have these fancy loaders where it does your dependencies automatically, and you can package them and identify them and do some neat stuff with it that you can't really do with globals. Right. Yeah, that's very true. So, 
Let's see. The the question was about prototype copying, prototype inheritance, and that kind of reuse. One one interesting misconception I've had in teaching JavaScript, which I found that half my articles on how to Node were teaching JavaScript, not teaching Node, is people don't understand. Oh, whoa! <laughs> they don't understand harmonicas. <laughs> they don't understand getting muted. All right. <laughs> I kept thinking it was my kid, so I kept hitting my mute button, and then it kept going. Oh, okay, never mind. Where am I? Okay, I was saying. So let's take let's take a prototype. You know the the crazy this keyword that confuses tons of JavaScript people. And this is a very interesting feature of JavaScript that lets you have the same function instance shared among many object instances. And as long as you handle your this value properly, they all work as designed. Mm-hmm. And so if you wanted to do like mix in, you don't have to use inheritance. You can just manually copy the function references over and they're equal, they're equal references to the same function. A function is not owned by a prototype. Right. In, in a class-based language, the class owns the methods. They're statically bound to that class. Whereas in JavaScript, it's just a reference to some function. It doesn't care how you get there. So inheritance is one way. Copying the, copying the methods manually is another way. And, and I show that in, I think, my object graph series where I like have the same function called from four different ways. Hmm. I never really thought about doing that where you effectively just... Uh set the property on whatever object you're dealing with to be the the function reference that you have stored off somewhere else under another name. Like So I want to ch- chime in here just a little bit and say that uh, as far as some of those techniques that you're talking about, um, you know, copying functions and using prototypes and uh, for that, you know, for a lot of the people that are out there doing the JavaScript are just barely getting into more and more complex JavaScript. That's something I would definitely recommend that they shy away from right at first because that can, you know, those are, that's kind of tricky, but if you know what you're doing, that's not such a big deal. Yeah. Is there a good explanation on how prototypes work out there somewhere? There are a bajillion of them. There's 80 crappy ones because it's such a foreign concept. You so, just, so Jameson, do you want to recommend one or two of your bajillion that um, isn't one of Joe's crappy ones? <laughs> <laughs> Yehuda has a couple of good ones. I actually really liked Tim's stuff on it, too. There's one that gets posted all the time in the JavaScript IRC channel that I can't... I don't have the link offhand. I'll, I'll grab a bunch of links and post them. They're all kind of a different... Everyone kind of has a different way of explaining it, so it can be helpful to get different... Uh, views on it to help you understand the concept. I think it's one of those things that it's just difficult to grok and you gotta, you have to read like four or five different articles and, and do it a bunch before it really makes any sense. So you have to go make some mistakes before you really Yeah, it's it's one of those it's a, it's a muscle memory type of skill. Yeah. You just can't read an article and then go out and do it. Yeah, you have to practice it. Yeah, for sure. And I want to chime in again that this is a lesson that's true on the ser- as true on the server side as on the client side, and that is, in, in general, reusing your code, inheritance is not the approach you want to take. 
you want to use aggregation, not inheritance. There's exceptions to that, but the general rule should always be, like, inheritance should be a code smell. I think inheritance should absolutely be a code smell. <laughs> there, there's definitely good uses for it, especially, like, if you're making a UI widget framework. But oh, yeah. For most, if it's, if it's just your reuse mechanism, it's not, it's probably not. Yeah. So when you say aggregate, did you mean composite? Are we saying the same thing yeah. with that? Okay. Yeah, using yeah, another I, class. Yeah, I, I totally agree. Composition rules over inheritance for in what I've done mostly. So if I want to compose a, a class or maybe just a set of functionality, what's the best way of doing that? I mean, we've talked around it some, but how do I add that functionality into what I already have? You... So you, you've, you've done a lot of Ruby, right, Chuck? Yeah. And what are they called? They're mix-ins, modules? Yeah, mix-in modules, yeah. So like you've got the enumerable thing. And if you yes. want to make a class that's enumerable, you just, you just mix that in. You don't really inherit from it. Right, exactly. So in JavaScript, you can either mix it in by hand by copying all the properties, or you can just embed it inside your object. I mean, it depends on what, what you're trying to reuse. Uh-huh. But that type of horizontal reuse where instead of inheriting from it, where it's an is a relationship, it's just a has a or, or needs this or uses this. Right. And, and that's what I'm, I'm kind of driving at is what's the mechanism for getting all of that functionality in there. You said you can manually copy the references, but is there a better way of doing that? Yeah, manually copying will give you the Ruby style mechanics where right. it's sort of inherited. Right. But the, the, other, the other method is just dump the object inside your object, compose it. Okay. So, so basically you would have like your, your main object and then it would have a property in it that's like enumerable functions or whatever. Yeah, enumerable is not a good case for that. You, right. I, I'm, just, I'm just throwing that out there in general. You know, whatever your module's functions are, they live in kind of a, a property that's its own object and then you just reference it that way. Yeah, like in, in Node, I'm very often wrapping a stream and present it as a new stream. Sometimes I want to inherit the stream, but usually I don't. Usually I just want to reference to the stream inside my object. Right. And then my object, another event emitter, and then emit the events that I want at my abstraction level. So it's a stream that contains a stream. Okay. Although, personally, I find with the event emitter, that is one that I do enjoy the inheritance. Right, but... That's more of a Ruby style mix-in where I just want the ability of doing event emitter. Like the event emitter constructor does nothing. It's just right. a bag of methods right. that if right. you add onto your object, it works. Right. It's just inheritance is the easiest way to get that in your chain. Yeah. Is there a, is there a library out there that will do that sort of... Underscore has an extend function that I think just copies all the, okay. all the properties of an object onto another object. jQuery has the same thing. Yeah, and Node has a utils that has that as well. So, and it's not that much code to write if you don't want to use any of those. Right. Lodash. You can always copy a for loop 5,000 times in every program you have. <laughs> <laughs> and if you have ECMA 6, you can just use object keys for each. It's actually faster. Well, now, we, were, we discussed this in a previous podcast. Uh, Lodash, you can get Lodash and just build it out with just that one function, right? Yeah! Yeah! <laughs> I have no idea this, what you guys are talking about. This the question of how much code is worth reusing. If it's five lines, should you bother reusing their code or just write it yourself? Yeah. Yeah, well, the other thing that comes in is, you know, when, at what point is code duplicated? 
um, because sometimes you see that you know different different pieces of code have a similar structure or doing some of the same work but when it comes right down to it I mean sometimes you can consolidate that and generalize it sometimes you can't so how, how do you recognize it what how do you do that pattern matching lots of experience I mean that's that's part of the art of programming is to know when to properly refactor your code and, and when it's not a good idea and some the, of this comes down to the overhead in reusing other people's code too like Yesterday, I wrote a function to turn underscore separated strings into camel case, and that exists in a bajillion places. But do I really want to have another dependency in my project to do something that's so simple? Um, yes. And no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> well, yeah, this isn't the server side. You know, every one of those bytes does matter. But they don't because if you run it through, well, yeah, they do and they don't, right? If you're on a big application, you're going to run it through the closure compiler or, you know, something of that nature. And then all your dead code falls out. It just shakes the tree and boom. Yeah, it's okay. not so much code. It's more the, it's more the, over, the overhead on the programmer. Yeah, that, that's generally, in, in my experience, that's generally more expensive than, you know, a couple milliseconds in, in execution time. The overhead of having more code that you wrote yourself or the overhead of using someone else's code? Exactly. Which is more? And that's right. different for every single use case. Yep. Yep. Like, I, I don't really want to re-implement WebSockets. I've done it once before and the spec changed five times since then. I use someone else's WebSocket library. Right. Yeah, but then, <laughs> but then you go look at what... Sorry, I, I got distracted. I was just going to say, like, like, to me, it's worth it. Like, I don't know how to set headers in the WebSocket library for Node, but I'm willing to mess around with that third-party code, then re-implement the entire spec myself. Because in that particular use case, it saves me a lot of time. And in a lot of cases, I mean, because we like having our own code, right? You can go on GitHub, you can fork somebody's project, it's been abandoned for six months, and you can pretty much just take it over and you know, say, hey, I, I want to refactor this, I want to make it cleaner, and they're going to be like, well, that's great go ahead and do it, you know? And, and then sometimes they even actually want to help you on it. But a lot of times you can just kind of, you know, you've got the foundation there and you're like, ah, this is kind of messy. I'll clean it up and make it mine. I have a few of those you can take over. See? <laughs> 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 well, finding duplicated code and eliminating it, you know, using somebody else's code, somebody else's library or, or writing your own function is just, you know, one of the aspects of finding and eliminating duplicated code. I think the harder aspect by far is when we first start out programming, we look for, oh, I've got the same five lines of code. I'll extract that out into a common function or something. But and then you get Ruby where it's one line per function. <laughs> right. Yeah. Well, if, it, if, harder, it's, yeah, if it's verbatim, it's easier to see. Yeah. It's the harder thing is the re, we're reusing the same paradigm, you know? Right. I'm doing the same kind of task. I'm just doing it slightly differently. Right. So that's where patterns can come in to help. Yeah. Patterns help, but you don't want to overly generalize things because then they're no good for anyone. Right. Right. I, I want to piggyback on Tam's comment there. I've, I've sometimes started out and I'm like, oh, yeah, I'll, you know, I see I'm doing some things that are really similar over and over again. So I'll generalize it. And then I end up with this code that is too general. And then I can't use it because some requirement comes along that totally breaks it and the system doesn't work. 
right. you generalize until you just have made a Turing machine, you've gone too far. <laughs> well, one other thing that, that I've seen happen in code that I've written is that I'll see two or three examples that are doing more or less the same thing, you know, with maybe one variation. And so then as time goes on, after I've generalized it, I have this simple case, except I have this case statement or if, else, else, if, else, if, else, if, you know, to, to handle all of the, the different edges that are, you know, or the different uh, specialized things that, you know, that one object needed. And, uh, you know, so sometimes it's hard to find a good way of handling those different use cases just to get the same or similar pieces out. Right. Yeah. And there is... Sorry. <sighs> Sorry. I was going to change the subject a little bit, so go ahead. Well, I, I wanted to point out that there is one place where duplicated code, I mean, even verbatim duplicated code, is not only acceptable, but often desirable. And uh, I don't know if any of you are going to guess what I'm going to say here. The, one, the one place. Hell? Unit tests. School. Oh, unit tests. School. <laughs> School. <laughs> you know, I have a story about that. <laughs> I actually had a computer science lab teacher who failed me because I didn't copy her example verbatim, whereas mine compiled and hers didn't. Nice. <laughs> Sometimes verbatim is better, even if it won't compile. Right. Depends on what the purpose is, right? That's right. That it sounds like a Harry Potter type experience. I didn't go. I, did, I switched schools after that. The worst thing I ever heard in school was I was talking to a co-student of mine and I was like, so this should be done this way because this is how it's done in the real world. And this is, you know, th this is a good way to do it. And he's like, look, dude, I don't care how to do it right or what makes it work better. I just want to pass the test. So I'm going to do it this way. <laughs> Like yeah. that, that makes me like seethe inside. I don't think just, that's the worst thing in the world. That just means, I mean, well, that's what you're going for. What are your priorities? Yeah. Do you want to pass or do you want to learn? Well, yeah, yeah that's the thing is like, to me, coding is an art form, you know, it's like code is my canvas. And so when other people are like, ah, oh, here's a stick figure, that's good enough. It gets the job done. I'm like, well, you go off and use PHP, but as for me and those people that care. <laughs> right. Craftsmanship. That's one thing I love from the Ruby community. They, they focus on that a lot. I used to oh, yeah. I used to go to the Dallas Ruby community a lot, and I learned a lot from those guys. That's and why UTDD. Wouldn't the Dallas Ruby users group be drug? <laughs> drug? And what was their what was their acronym? It was oh, it's just Dallas RB. Oh, okay. Yeah, they okay. started a, a Ruby group here in Utah in Salt Lake and they call it the downtown Ruby users group and they shortened it to drug. Nice. Yeah. If you care about your code quality TDD. Yeah, absolutely. Oh, in fact, the root on Ruby rogues, we just read growing object oriented software guided by test. And they talk a lot about the testing stuff that, that, that That's uh, a sweet book. you bring up. Yeah, it's, it, it really is. And it, it really kind of gives you an idea of how your tests can help you organize your code. And there's way more there than we can actually go over on the show, but you know, definitely, you know, write your tests first. Let them kind of guide your 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 code, and let them tell you when things are kind of getting too complicated or too uh, hairy for you to actually deal with. Because if you can't think about it to test it, then it's probably something that you need to refactor. Yeah, I exactly. I don't know if we want to get off on this tangent. I have some 
some things I don't understand about how to use TDD in the environment that I'm in, though. I don't like TDD sometimes. We're doing lots of rapid prototyping and things change. I mean, I'm, I'm at a startup, so things change wildly from day to day sometimes almost. So right. it, it doesn't pay to invest that much effort upfront into good, clean code if you don't know if it's going to exist tomorrow. And yeah, but if it does exist tomorrow, then where are you? Well, well, then you lucked out, but if it doesn't, then you wasted all that time. So there, I have... I have definitely a little bit of experience with that, Jameson. And one yeah, of the Joe things, and I have talked about this a lot. Yeah, we've talked about this a lot. And it is, it is really hard, especially in, a, in a, an environment where you are going to, you're not 100% sure what you will throw away. But prototyping without tests is definitely, in my opinion, a better way to go. But I always, I always, once I realized, once I know the te- that the code's going to stay, the code's ready to go, I throw it away and rewrite it with test driven development. And I've got, I'm actually right in the middle of publishing an article uh, highlighting just like, I don't know, like 80 lines of code, how it was written bef- before when we just prototyped it out and how it looked when we were done after we test drove it. And the difference in the code is just night and day for clarity. Absolutely right. night and day. Yep. So, so the takeaway is test driven if you want clean code, rapid prototyping if you want code that solves a real problem. <laughs> well, I, I think there's still this idea of red, green refactor, though. I mean, like, right? You can do both. How, how do you know if your if your prototype code works? Right? I mean, I guess there's lots of different definitions of of testing, and generally, when we say TDD, we mean unit testing. But for me, I have to write tests for you know any any API that I'm writing. I gotta. I, I don't know if it works unless I'm writing a test. You know, so I. You can write the code and that's cool, but it usually doesn't work. <laughs> so yeah. it. Well, you can right. usually manually test it to verify that it works. It's just a painful process. And it's right. probably okay once, but if you have to manually test the same code twice, you have, that's usually your breaking point when it was, would have been better to write unit tests or, or functional tests. Yeah, well... Automated yeah. tests of some kind. Yeah. I hear what Tim has to say. He keeps trying to break in. Go ahead, Tim. <laughs> But still, you know, writing writing tests for your code, or sorry, test driving your code for the tests is a lot like going dogging for the view. You know, you're just you're missing out on the biggest benefit by far if you're only writing your tests first, just so that you have tests. That's that's the secondary benefit of test test driving your code. Right. So. Back when I went to Dell SRB, the first meeting I went to, Dave Thomas was there giving out Pragmatic Programmer books. And so I was introduced very quickly to those that brand of books. And one of my favorite ones is one called Interface Oriented Design. I don't know who's read that. Nope. But the basic, the basic premise of the book is object-oriented programming is not what you want. Interface-oriented programming is what you want. You can use objects if that's the way you do it. But the key is... When you break your code up into these different modules and you reuse modules, you have to stick to your interfaces. They have to agree on how they communicate between each other, how they're used, and then you can use whatever you want on the inside. Yeah, that's that's a lot along the same lines as the Growing Object or Oriented Software Guided by Test book. Um, they talk a lot about how it's the, the messaging between the objects that matters. Um, you know, you don't care as much I mean, well, you, you care, obviously, as a developer on how it gets the job done as you implement it, but 
ultimately you want to be able to send the message over there and not worry about how it's going to do the job and, and just know that when you tell it to do something, it's going to do it. Right. You just don't want to get hung up on classes and inheritance and, and specific details of like one genre of OOP. Right. Especially since the interactions are the things that are going to effectively um, define how your system operates anyway. I mean, I mean, even, even TDD, that's focusing a lot on your API and using yes. your API and especially automated unit tests. They're great for libraries where you know what you want and you want it to be rock solid. By all means, unit test the heck out of that. Get 100% coverage. But if you're just exploring a space and you're trying to solve a real-world need, I mean, that is the end result of all software. If it doesn't solve a real-world need, it's worthless. Yeah. Absolutely. So you, you got to keep that's... that perspective. That's why exploring without tests is totally acceptable. Just once you know the space well enough, you, you should abandon your code and go back and rewrite it using um, a test-driven method. And Absolutely. I've done that many times. We, we wrote the HTML5 player for Pluralsight, and it was, you know, we were getting into space, a lot of spaces. We were doing stuff that we couldn't find anybody else had tried to do. We tried to use a sort videos using the file system API, which only Chrome and WebKit and uh, Firefox support. And uh, I mean, nobody. So all normal browsers. <laughs> yeah, all normal browsers. But nobody that we, we, we didn't find anybody talking about using video through the file system API. And uh, so we were really doing some, you know, in some new territory. And we just had to prototype without tests. But once we knew that the code, figured out how the code was supposed to work, we threw it away and we rewrote it. With tests, yes, yeah. that, that's what I do as well. I the bulk of my work is prototyping, but once a library gets stable and people are actually using it, then then I start worrying about unit tests, and it usually helps me find a lot of bugs and clean up the API. Absolutely. Yep. All right. Well, we're getting close to the time on picks. Is there anything else that you guys want to talk over before we start sharing what we like? Um, did we want to talk about like the JavaScript specifics of inheritance versus closures or, or save that for another day? We can go over it briefly. We've talked about it before. Right. I um, mean, it's, but it yeah. often confuses people. Yeah. Wh why don't you just kind of give us a thumbnail sketch on, on how that stuff works? Well, the, the moment where I finally had the epiphany and understood it was when I was writing the object graph series and I had to draw all these all these memory linkages together as as diagrams and i realized that a closure is an object yes and you get a new instance of the object every single time you call the function and get your closure whereas with prototype based stuff you get a new instance every time you use the new keyword but otherwise they're just different syntax for the exact same thing and as, as long as you're aware of that, it's nice. I mean, the, the pros of the closure-based is you don't have to worry about this. Everything's, everything's in your closure using the implicit nested scopes. Mm -hmm. So it's easier, especially if you have callbacks all over the place. You don't have to bind your callbacks because they're pre-bound. But if you want to have, like, have 10,000 copies of the same object that are slightly different, you're probably better off using instances because they all share all their behavior. They just have their own local copy of state. Right. I have found that it's fun to prototype with closures, but when you want the code to get clean, using prototypes is usually the way to go because there, there are 
problems with organization and testing and memory usage with the closures. Yeah, closures hide everything secretly, which could be good and bad. Right. It, it just comes back to what problem you're trying to solve. And I'm trying to all this subjective. It depends on the problem thing. <laughs> you want there to be the right answer. Jameson, again, however you want to do it, you're doing it wrong. <laughs> <laughs> if you have to ask, you'll never know. I, I wish schools had degrees. That was the art of programming. I mean, computer science is great. I love that field of math, but that's not programming. I love that field of math. <laughs> Amen, brother. Amen. It is that a field of math. Cool. It is a field of math, and I like it, but it's not programming. Not at all. I hear you. All right, anyway. All right, well, let's go ahead and get into the picks. Um, AJ, do you want to start us off? I absolutely do not. Jameson, <laughs> what are your picks? Uh, let me pull them up here. I was not prepared. All right, so one of my picks, this is an old thing that lots of you have probably already read, um, but it's just The Pragmatic Programmer, just the original book. Um, lots of the advice is, um, it, it can seem fairly basic if you've done real-world programming in, in a business environment, but some of it is still really great stuff. And And if you are trying to get started and you don't have very much experience, then it's it's all great stuff. I mean, you should know everything in that book and some of it you might know already, but if you don't, you'll learn it and that's great. So it was like $3 on the Kindle a couple days ago and I picked it up. And then my other pick is uh, just these Coursera classes. I've been going back through them because I didn't really have time while they were going on and going back through the, the natural language processing class especially. And it's so good. It's It's definitely computer science, not programming like Tim was talking about, but I think there's lots of value in doing things that might not be practically useful just because they're awesome. So those are my picks. Awesome. Um, Joe, what are your picks? Uh, all right. So I have two picks. My first one is pair programming. Uh, the new place that I'm at, that's not, I, I just got this job at, at Domo. And so they haven't done a lot of pair programming. I've been pair programming here and it's just been really awesome. And I think that people are finally starting to see the value of it, at least the people I'm pair pairing with. My second pick is the game Farmageddon with an F. It's, it was a Kickstarter project. It's just barely released. And I haven't actually played it yet, but I am really excited to play it. The game store near my house is going to have a copy in pretty soon. So that's my second pick, Farmageddon. I've heard so, of that game. About pair program, do do any of you guys do remote pairing ever? Yeah, I've done a ton. I've done a little. I should talk to you about that because I think it'd be fun just to do that on just random side projects and stuff, not even for work. So, like, yeah, I have a I have a tool for that. What's it called? Uh, I don't know, Cloud Nine ID. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> no, but, but seriously, we recently added a feature where you can collaborate in your ID and it's kind of like Google Docs live editing. So it's, it's like Tmux almost. Yeah, but a little more graphical. <laughs> yeah, if you want to click on stuff, I guess that, that's better. Yeah, and it's, we, I don't think we've integrated voice or anything, but there's like, an, there's like an integrated chat and you can see each other's cursors and it's kind of cool. Nice. Well, Can I add a new pick then? Okay. Uh, it's called pairwith.me. It's by a, a local guy named Mike Moore. He's a Rubyist. He's a really cool guy. 
And it's a little site for kind of hooking up with people that you want to pair with. Um, you can schedule times. It's still like heavily in development, but if, if you just want to find someone to pair with, you're not like looking to pair with a specific person on a specific project, then it's a cool little tool for that. That's yeah, there, there are a few of them out there like that. Are there any like any ones that have one that are really popular? I don't think that there's like a big, you know, main one out there. You know, if GitHub added something like this, I think it would automatically win. Yeah, probably. Sorry, I totally butted in, but... No, it's fine. Tim, what are your picks? All right. So, I'm going to pick Interface-Oriented Design since I mentioned it. It's it's a really good book and not too big. And also, in case any of our listeners haven't read them yet, I wrote three articles on how to note about learning objects through visual graphs. And I had a ton of fun writing them, and people so far have loved reading them. So it's Object Graphs 1, 2, and 3. It's three articles on how to node. Awesome. All right, AJ, you ready? He fled in fear. (laughs) (laughs) He's going to make me do my picks next, I guess. So um, one pick, I'm not sure if it's been picked on the show or not. Um, but every time I use it, I'm just, I'm always happy with it. And that is, um, Amazon prime. And, uh, you, you can rent videos for free on it. You can borrow books for free on it, depending on whether or not they're available. And you can also get free two day shipping, which I guess isn't technically free since you paid the 80 bucks a year to get it. (laughs) But Anyway, I have I have already recouped $80 worth of value out of it. I am certain. So that's one pick. And then the other one um, is, is just something that I, I've been using for a while here. To, and it's, it's basically what I use to like edit contracts and things like that. Um, I actually sign my contracts with it and stuff. It's called PDF Pen. And uh, it's a PDF editor. It does OCR. It does a bunch of other nice things. Uh, stuff makes it really easy to edit PDFs. So if you have to do any kind of PDF editing on any sort of regular basis, then PDF pen is your friend and you can get that in the uh, Mac app store. I don't know if it's available for windows. I do believe they also have a, a version for iPad. So if you know, if you're doing PDF stuff there, you can do it there as well. All right, AJ, what are your picks? Um, I'm going to pick, Zola Gouda from Holland. Gouda. Is that a pop band? Cheese. Oh. Right? Am I right? Yeah, it is a cheese. It is a cheese. It's a Gouda cheese, and it's pretty Gouda, you know? Sorry, that was a terrible pun. (laughs) I lived in Italy for two years, and I'll tell you, yeah, good cheeses. Gouda was one of my favorites. Well, uh, so we have this grocery store here. I don't know if it's outside of Utah much, or but uh, Harmons is that is that anywhere else, or is that just a Utah thing? I never heard of it. Okay, well, Harmons is really nice because they have um, they're kind of you know, they cater more towards the like the community and some of the organic stuff, and then they have like a, a nice selection of cheeses. And so um, I went there, and they had a a good cheese, so I just bought a chunk of it and I've been eating away at it and it's it's good um and speaking of puns um so the other day we were having a meeting here 
And um, I said, well, I guess that wraps that up. Now back to your regular, regularly scheduled programming. I didn't realize it was a pun at first, but then it was funny. Okay. So is your pick that pun or puns in general? Uh, no, my pick is definitely not puns. I'm not not a pun fan. I've had enough puns. Oh my goodness. I have too many friends that pun everything. Um, so I'm not actually even picking that. That's just a story that I was reminded of. Okay. And then that's all. Okay. All right. Well, we'll wrap the show up then. We'll uh, I'll sign off. We'll catch you all next week.